And now, coming to you from an undisclosed location. It's the Novus Ordo Watch Trapcast. You've got to be kidding. You can't make the stuff up. I have a confession to make. I have to admit, I've been really scared preparing for this episode. There is such a tremendous amount of stuff that ought to be talked about here. I didn't even want to look at it all. But here we are. It is Trapcast number 23. Thanks for tuning in once again, and welcome. By the way, for the best possible podcast experience, we suggest you accept cookies. Uh, Specifically, we recommend chocolate chip and peanut butter. Those go great with some tea or coffee as you sit back, relax, and uh, listen to the show. A little humor here. Uh, Everything else is serious enough. Come on. You know, this podcast was supposed to be ready for release no later than September 30th, and here we are in the middle of November. Well, I can tell you that the main reason for this delay was the whole drama that began on August 25th with the release of the first testimony of the former Vatican nuncio to the United States, Carlo Maria Viganò. That whole drama, which is still ongoing, of course, really threw a monkey wrench into everything because it added an an extra layer of uh, breaking news, research, and commentary to an already very busy news cycle. So um, it's just tough, you know. It's tough to uh, keep track of everything, to keep it all straight. And, uh, of course, you have to ensure that you don't unwittingly end up publishing fake news. So... Well, we want everyone to be able to come to Novos Ordo Watch and uh, know that what you're reading is reliable and credible, okay? Uh, You may not like what you see, but that's another story. Uh, Just the other day, I was thinking of compiling a list of uh, big-name Novos Ordo and semi-traditionalist apologists and pundits who used to defend Francis but have given up since because it just got too ridiculous, Here's the list of names I came up with off the top of my head. Uh, Father John Zulstorf, Jeffrey Maris, Patrick Madrid, Jimmy Aiken, Tim Haynes, Michael Voris, Phil Lawler, Michael Matt, Christopher Ferrara, Patrick Coffin, and Taylor Marshall. Now, all of these have either turned on Francis after trying for a while to spin everything in the best possible way, Uh, Or they've simply stopped defending him because uh, it it just became a full-time job to explain this guy, right? So I I think that's a a pretty significant list. That's uh, quite a few names. And and those are just the names that I can think of off the top of my head. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, just as a little reality check to uh, keep in the back of your mind uh, for all those listeners who are new to our website or to this podcast or to state of Vakandism in general. You know, five and a half years ago, we were criticized or ridiculed by a number of different Novos Ordos and resistance traditionalists. And now everyone can see what that criticism was really worth. Uh, you didn't have to be a psychic to see back then already that Bergoglio was not a Catholic. All you needed to know was uh, the basics of Catholicism and understand how modernism works. Unfortunately, though, too many people allow emotion or human respect to determine what they believe. It's just not cool, not socially acceptable to be a Sedeva contest. And while for most people that is everybody's own personal business, it's a different matter when you run a website, a blog, a newspaper, or a video channel or something, 
and then publish your rationalizations to the world because now you're responsible for the people you mislead. And I'm afraid that we see this happen a lot. We continually find supposedly traditional Catholic or conservative Catholic websites willing to publish all sorts of crazy ideas about the papacy in order to address the, let's call it the Francis phenomenon. Okay, But there is one theory they will not tolerate. They will not admit sedevacantism as even a possibility. That is the one thing they won't allow. And so they don't mind if the ideas that they're putting forth are in direct contradiction to the Catholic doctrine on the papacy, as long as they don't have to say that Francis is not the Pope. They're more ready to say that being Pope doesn't mean much than to say that Francis isn't the Pope. That's how crazy and absurd it's gotten. And those few that do say now that Francis isn't Pope hold that it's only on the grounds that Benedict XVI is really the Pope because he never resigned validly or that the 2013 conclave was invalid because of some violation of conclave rules by the so-called St. Gallen Mafia. And for a recent example of what's being proposed as traditional Catholicism, Look no further than The Remnant. On November 8th, a writer by the name of Jason Morgan published a blog post entitled Seda Vacationism. And in a somewhat lighthearted manner, he proposed as a solution to the Francis conundrum the idea that a pope remains pope even if he is clearly a heretic. It's just that at that point, at the point it becomes evident, he must be refused submission. He didn't use those exact words, but that's basically what he argued. And so to him, that is kind of a best-of-both-worlds synthesis of Sedevacantism on the one hand and the idea that Francis is fully pope on the other. A pope-in-name-only scenario. Now, that this idea is both heretical and systematic either didn't occur to him or didn't matter to him because, hey, diabolical disorientation or something. We can just decide to suspend the perennial validity of Catholic teaching because we decide it's necessary. That's what these people think, apparently. Now, on November 9th, we published a devastating response to Morgan's blog post entitled Missing the Forest for the Trees, and we've got it linked in the show notes for this episode, Tradcast 23. You can find that at tradcast.org. Just uh, scroll down to episode 23 and then click on that link. So um, because we have it linked, I'm not going to repeat all the arguments here now that we make in the blog post. Uh, You can just go and read them for yourself, which you'll want to do anyway, because uh, as always, we have all our ducks in a row in terms of documenting the evidence for our position. We don't just sound off at the keyboard here and say stuff about such a serious matter without backing it up. So, in short, for the semi-traditionalists, the the recognize and resist traditionalists like those at the remnant, the name of the game is still anything but sedevacantism. And judging by recent articles and things, it's the season again for desperately trying to find arguments against Sedevacantism. And that's no doubt because more and more people are becoming Sedevacantists or are seriously looking into the position once they've overcome the initial biases against it or misconceptions about it. Of course, for some people, perhaps the real hang-up is the name, Sedevacantism. Sounds horrible, doesn't it? Now, some of you listening might not know what it actually means. The term comes from the phrase Sede. Vacante. That's Latin and means the chair being empty and uh, is in reference to the chair of St. Peter, which we believe is vacant. That is, there is no pope and there has not been one since Pius XII died in 1958, at least not that we have certain knowledge of. You know, Sedevacanists are simply the Catholics who refused to change their religion after Pius XII died and their progeny, of course, plus new converts. But that's really all it is. If you want to find one group of people that believes exactly what the church believed and taught while Pius XII was still Pope, 
It's Sedevacanus. No other group that calls itself traditionally Catholic does that. Not the Semitrads. Nope. Not the Society of St. Pius X. Not the Fraternity of St. Peter and other indult groups. Not the new Resistance SSPX. Now, I understand that they mean to, but they don't in actual fact. And since they acknowledge the modernist hierarchs as valid Catholic authorities, but nevertheless refuse their religion, they've had to mess with Catholic doctrine on church authority in order to justify that. You can't have the Catholic hierarchy teaching one thing and the faithful believing another. That's not how authority works in the Catholic Church. And in that case, you might just as well not have a hierarchy at all, because it's worse than useless. It's dangerous and a hindrance to salvation. We said Arcanists have simply remained what Catholics were up until 1958. We believe no strange new doctrines, and we do not refuse submission to anyone we acknowledge as a legitimate Catholic authority. Now, it's true that the consequence of that, given what has happened, is that we are basically left bewildered, unable to point to any legitimate shepherds that we know of, but that is what it is. That's just the situation we find ourselves in. And St. Paul says in a second letter to the Corinthians, we walk by faith and not by sight. That's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 7. And we don't have all the answers, but... We don't have to have all the answers, and at least we don't mess around with church teaching to make it fit what we want to see, because once again, we're Catholics. So then, why don't we just call ourselves that? Why do we call ourselves Sedevacanus instead, such a cumbersome and scary-sounding word? Well, because unfortunately in our day, the term Catholic is totally ambiguous. Everyone claims to be a Catholic. Everyone, whether it's Richard Rohr or Nancy Pelosi on the left or Robert Barron and Carl Keating in the center or Bishop Richard Williamson and Marion Horvat on the right. So to simply say we're Catholic doesn't, I'm afraid, tell you anything anymore. It just doesn't communicate what used to be communicated by that term. So we cannot simply say, well, we're Catholics even though that is indeed all we are and all we care to be. All right, let's uh, look at some more or less recent news headlines. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the Vatican-China deal, a provisional agreement between the Unholy See and Communist China concerning the appointment of Catholic bishops. Well, no sort of bishops, but, you know, they call them Catholic bishops. Well, This agreement that France has authorized has brought all the government-appointed bishops of the communist-controlled Chinese National Church into full communion with Rome and has made them the legitimate bishops of their dioceses, uh, some of which dioceses were even created by the communist government and not even by the Vatican, and they're now legitimate dioceses. So with with a stroke of a pen... Uh, Francis handed it all over to the Chicoms and is leaving the persecuted underground church hanging out to dry in exchange for the Chicoms allowing him to veto certain bishops' appointments, something like that. It's utterly disgraceful and a total betrayal of the people who, through all the communist persecution over the decades, have remained faithful to the Holy See or to the, what they thought was the Holy See. The schism between China and uh, the Holy See started uh, in the 1950s when uh, Pope Pius XII condemned the false communist-controlled hierarchy they had established. And uh, you can read about that in uh, what I believe was Pius XII's last encyclical, Ad Apostolorum Principis, of uh, June 29th, 1958. And of course, we have that linked for you in the show notes. Well, I think it's not surprising. Why wouldn't the modernist Vatican make a deal with China? I mean, they're just as communist as China now, so it makes sense, okay? Might as well declare full communion now. Unlike the SSPX, the Society of St. Pius X is not yet in full communion with the modernist Vatican, but they're working on it, and I'm sure that before long, they too will enjoy Chicom status in the new church. 
All right, let's uh, stay with the Vatican a bit longer. On September 11th, the private secretary of Benedict XVI, who also happens to be the head of the uh, papal household of Francis, Archlayman Ger Genswein, gave a lecture praising the book The Benedict Option by the American author and columnist Rod Dreher. Uh, the occasion was the official release of the Italian translation of that work, which had been released in English in March of 2017. Now, I haven't read the book, but uh, as far as I understand, there's nothing really objectionable in it. Um, the main thesis of the book is that Christians should withdraw to some extent from mainstream society into special communities in order to keep the faith and keep ourselves away from the allurements of the world, kind of like St. Benedict. That's, that's the uh, main thesis of the book. And there's no problem with that, I don't think. Uh, and no, the problem is with what Genswein said in his speech. First of all, in 2016, before uh, he published this book, Rod Dreher converted from the Novus Ordo religion, which he believed to be Catholicism, to Eastern Orthodoxy. Now, that is a scandal. But, of course, Genswein said nothing about that and acted like this book was written by a Catholic, and he treated the author accordingly. Although, even by Novus Ordo standards, get this, even by Novus Ordo standards, Dreher defected into schism and heresy. But then that's par for the course in Novus Ordo land. All the baptized are Christians, no matter what. They have a right to religious liberty, and in any case, conscience is primary. And we're all one big, happy ecumenical family anyway. And Dreher, by the way, converted to Eastern Orthodoxy because of the sex abuse scandals. Yeah, he even says that. In any case, that is not the main thing I want to focus on. What I want to focus on is what Genswein says during his speech regarding the German Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who is somewhat well-known because he was part of the resistance against the Nazi regime and was executed for it on April 9, 1945, in a concentration camp. Here is what Genswein says. Quote, we had learned earlier from St. John Paul II that in our historical hour, the true and perfect ecumenism was the ecumenism of the martyrs, allowing us to call in our need upon St. Edith Stein next to Dietrich Bonhoeffer as intercessors in heaven. Unquote. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Genswein is saying that a Lutheran theologian died a martyr and is now in heaven because he was executed by the Nazis. Now, mind you, he did not die a Catholic. It's not like he converted shortly before his death or something. No, he went to his death as a Lutheran. In the 15th century, the Council of Florence defined the following, quote, those not living within the Catholic Church, not only pagans, but also Jews and heretics and schismatics, cannot become participants in eternal life, but will depart into everlasting fire, which was prepared for the devil and his angels, unless before the end of life the same have been added to the flock. And no one, whatever almsgiving he has practiced, even if he has shed blood for the name of Christ, can be saved unless he has remained in the bosom and unity of the Catholic Church, unquote. And that's from the bull Cantate Domino of the Council of Florence, and you can find that in Denzinger, number 714. What Genswein said clearly implies a denial of this teaching. And that is so even if we assume that Bonhoeffer was in good faith, that is, if he innocently did not realize that his heresies were contrary to God's revelation. And if we assume that he died in perfect contrition and therefore in the state of sanctifying grace and went to heaven, the church could still not consider him a saint or a martyr because he did not profess the true faith, but was the member of a heretical sect and gave no sign of repudiating his adherence to Lutheranism. You know, these matters are very important. Well, not, not in Novus Ordo land, of course, but that's just the point. So, for Genswein to act as though Bonhoeffer were a Catholic saint and a martyr, 
saying that we can now call upon him as our intercessor in heaven is a monstrous scandal. And yet there is no outcry. No one in the audience probably even recognized that as a heresy. And I know it's a touchy subject because it involves Nazis and concentration camps and all that. But that has nothing to do with the principle. Resisting the Nazis the way Bonhoeffer and countless others did was a very heroic and noble thing to do, but that doesn't make you a Catholic or a saint. That's the point. Now, Genswein is no stranger to heresies, had to say. In a Christmas interview in 2016, Genswein was asked what he would answer to someone who asked him to prove the existence of God. Here is how he responded, quote, There is neither proof that God exists, nor is there proof that God does not exist. Faith does not operate based on proof. Faith lives by witnesses and witnessing. If I am convinced by a witness and by what he says, then this sets faith ablaze. Everything else does not lead to faith, but remains outside of faith. This is true also, and especially in our times. Unquote. That is heresy. Pure and unadulterated heresy. The name of this heresy is fideism, and it denies the dogma of the provability of the existence of God by reason alone, which was defined at the First Vatican Council on April 24, 1870, in the dogmatic constitution De Filius. Quote, if anyone shall have said that the one true God, our Creator and our Lord, cannot be known with certitude by those things which have been made by the natural light of human reason, let him be anathema. If anyone shall have said that divine revelation cannot be made credible by external signs, and for this reason men ought to be moved to faith by the internal experience alone of each one, or by private inspiration, let him be anathema. If anyone shall have said that miracles are not possible, and hence that all accounts of them, even those contained in sacred scripture, are to be banished among the fables and myths, or that miracles can never be known with certitude, and that the divine origin of the Christian religion cannot be correctly proved by them, let him be anathema. Unquote. And that's from Denzinger, Numbers 1806, 1812 and 1813. That was the first Vatican Council. Now, this dogma of the ability of our reason to prove the existence of God and the credibility of divine revelation, etc., this dogma is absolutely crucial because it is the foundation of the Catholic religion. I mean, you take that away and all you have left is emotion and arbitrariness. And that's exactly what Protestants have, at least those Protestants that are fideists. I'm, I'm not sure that all of them are, but uh, certainly uh, most of them. They make what they call a leap of faith, but that's not a virtue. It's pure foolishness. By the same token, you might as well believe anything else, and I mean anything. If you simply believe without any rational reason to do so, then whether you adhere to Jesus Christ or to Muhammad or to Buddha or to the flying spaghetti monster, it's all the same. The reason for belief is the same. You simply so choose. But the true religion is not based on a whim. It is based on reason, meaning that our belief in God and his revelation is eminently reasonable. The existence of one transcendent God who is all good, who is all-knowing, all-powerful, who made the world, and so forth, can be proved by reason alone. From history, it can be shown that Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the true God incarnate and proved it by many miracles, especially his very own resurrection from the dead. And this Jesus Christ established a church to last until the end of time to teach the divine truth that is necessary for all men to be saved. And whatever this church teaches as divinely revealed, this we accept on faith, meaning on the authority of God who reveals it and who can neither lie nor make a mistake. So our faith is grounded in reason, not in arbitrariness. Otherwise, if it were all arbitrary, then no one could be said to have an obligation to embrace the faith to begin with, and any religion would be as good as any other, and anyone's choice of religion would be as good as anyone else's. 
which, incidentally, is exactly what the modernists ultimately believe. You know, as long as you believe in something, right? Genswein is a genuine modernist heretic, but I don't think I've ever seen him getting bad press from the conservative Novus Ordos or from the Semitrats. Because you know how it is, as long as you oppose abortion and hold the line on other issues of sexual morality in the new church, you're golden for a lot of these people. And Genswein often appears with Benedict XVI, since he's his secretary, and I guess just for that reason alone, he gets a pass. But this is serious business. To be a heretic, it doesn't matter what dogma you deny. It doesn't have to be about adultery or the divinity of Christ, for example. All heresies are equal in the sense that they all reject one thing that God has revealed and prefer one's own judgment over that of God. And so it's actually kind of secondary what dogma it is you reject. Once you've made yourself the standard of what is true over against God, you've rejected the whole thing in principle. And that's why heresy and apostasy differ only in degree and not in kind. The heretic denies one or several dogmas, but continues to call himself a Christian. The apostate rejects everything hook, line, and sinker. And that's why modernism is so dangerous. By subverting the very foundation of all faith, of what it means to have faith, okay? by denying the very concept of faith and dogma, modernism completely undermines the entire religion and is therefore a true apostasy, a complete falling away from the faith. Let me quote to you how St. Pius X described modernism in his encyclical Pascendi, number 39, quote, And now with our eyes fixed upon the whole system, no one will be surprised that we should define it to be the synthesis of all heresies. Undoubtedly, were anyone to attempt the task of collecting together all the errors that have been broached against the faith and to concentrate into one the sap and substance of them all, he could not succeed in doing so better than the modernists have done. They have gone further than this, for, as we have already intimated, their system means the destruction not of the Catholic religion alone, but of all religion." Unquote. The logical end result of modernism is atheism, and that's why there has been such a tremendous falling away from the Catholic faith since Vatican II. All right, this was uh, pretty dense. Let's move on to something a bit lighter now. The Vatican is creating an international observatory against cyberbullying, according to the website Rome Reports. Now, that's not wrong or anything, but it just goes to show how, once again, the Vatican is concerned about and involved in everything except in what they're actually supposed to be doing. I mean, if that were the Catholic Church. How about an international observatory monitoring, preventing, and fighting the spread of false doctrines, for example, or bad books, bad movies, pornography? I haven't heard anything in that regard lately. No, because, you see, it's all about conscience and religious freedom and maturity and whatnot. Besides, they're way too busy trying to get plastic straws out of oceans and promoting clean water for everyone and meteorite care. Yeah, did you hear about that? The Vatican hosted a conference on the care of meteorites back in September. The community of curators has been trying to organize itself for many years. This workshop represents a wonderful opportunity for us, and I'm excited and pleased that the Vatican Observatory can host such an important meeting, said some Jesuit doofus there. For years, meteorite curators have had to figure things out independently. Now we are finally coming together as a community. <sighs> I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Yeah, it's all linked in the show notes. It's all there. You can uh, look it up yourself if you don't believe me. Look, I, I wouldn't probably believe it myself if I didn't know it was true. It is beyond absurd. Let me quote you something from a Zenit news report of October 26th 
regarding a joint statement of uh, the presidents of uh, five uh, continental Novus Ordo bishops' conferences. In it, they're calling on governments to ensure doing the following, quote, Keeping global warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, shifting towards sustainable lifestyles, respecting the knowledge of indigenous communities, implementing a financial paradigm shift in line with global climate accords, transforming the energy sector by putting an end to the fossil fuel era and transitioning to renewable energy, and rethinking the agriculture sector to ensure it provides healthy and accessible food for everyone with a special emphasis on promoting agroecology, unquote. Need I say more? Then, uh, in his message for the World Day of Prayer for the Care of Creation, released on September 1st, Pope Francis said this, quote, We cannot allow our seas and oceans to be littered by endless fields of floating plastic. Here, too, our active commitment is needed to confront this emergency, unquote. You know what this world is drowning in? It's drowning in heresy and apostasy, in infidelity and ignorance, in all sorts of doctrinal and philosophical errors, in vice, in pornography, in selfishness, and that is a true emergency, an emergency of souls. But Francis is a naturalist. His primary concern is the temporal world, and that's also why he's so popular among so many worldlings. St. John the Evangelist wrote this in Sacred Scripture, quote, They are of the world, therefore of the world they speak, and the world heareth them, unquote. That's First John chapter 4, verse 5. Francis' concern is not the honor and glory of God and the salvation of souls. His concern is making the world a better place. Now, let's be clear. Most of these concerns are entirely legitimate in themselves. Well, not, not media right care. Give me a break. But, you know, access to clean water, oceans free of plastic, better education, safer playgrounds, stronger adhesives for your dentures, whatever. That's all fine and good. But it's got nothing to do with the mission of the Vatican. That's not the Pope's job. That's not why Christ instituted the papacy. No one needs a pope if his job is to tell people to emit fewer greenhouse gases, exercise more, or be nice to each other. Anyone can do that. The German journalist Alexander Kissler once referred to Francis as a UN Secretary General with a pectoral cross. Touché. Touché. Although, considering that his pectoral cross has all the grace and style of a bottle opener, eh, you know. Again, Francis is a naturalist, and naturalism is one of the central components of modernism. Recall that on February 1st of this year, in his daily homily, he reflected on death without mentioning judgment, heaven, or hell. That's what a naturalist does. And we saw it again just the other day. On November 8th, he received the Prince of Denmark in private audience. And you know what he told him? He told him that, quote, the environment is the most important challenge of our time, unquote. And that's according to the website Info Vaticana. Well, I think I've gotten my point across. All right, moving on. With regards to the case of Asia Bibi, I'm sure you've heard about it. Asia Bibi is a Pakistani woman, a Catholic, well, a Novus Ordo, but that's what she knows as Catholicism. And she's been imprisoned uh, there for roughly nine years on charges of blasphemy against Islam. Uh, Pakistan is like 95% or so Muslim. Now, she was just declared innocent by the Pakistani Supreme Court. Uh, but now they're afraid to actually set her free because the rabble is roused against her and wants to lynch her because they disagree with the court. So right now there are conflicting reports about whether she's still in Pakistan or whether she's been secretly flown somewhere else or whether any country is going to grant her asylum or what. All right. Well, 
Anyway, for years, her family had been trying to get an audience with Francis, and uh, they, they couldn't. They were not successful. And so uh, one day in April of 2015, her family showed up in the VIP section uh, at a general audience. And uh, Francis, you know, he walked past them and he met them, but he had it was clear he had no regard for them. He listened to the lawyer. Uh, that was with them explain who they were, but then he quickly passed them by and just said he prays for all the persecuted or something like that. It was really disgraceful. And uh, we're putting the link of that video in the show notes so you can see how he acted then uh, with regard to them. Now, he did finally grant them an audience, a private audience, in February of this year. Uh, but he has never, to my knowledge, spoken out in public about the matter, never called for her release or anything of the kind. And of course, you wonder, why? Why is that? What's going on here? Uh, he who is supposedly always standing up for the defenseless, the persecuted, the marginalized, those without a voice, you know, why is he so silent regarding the case of Asia Bibi? Well, I think we now have the answer. You see, Asia Bibi was accused of blasphemy because she proselytized a Muslim woman. Reports on the details differ a little bit, but basically what happened is that she was working in a field with some Muslim women back in 2009, and at one point she went to get water from a well, and next to the well she found a little cup and decided to use it to drink some of the water herself. And uh, as one of the other women approached, Bibi offered the cup with water also to her, a very Catholic Christian and generally nice thing to do. But the Muslim woman was offended and said that Christians are not permitted to drink from the same cups as Muslims drink, and the water in it was therefore now unclean. And Azia Bibi then said, quote, I believe in my religion and in Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for the sins of mankind. What did your prophet Muhammad ever do to save mankind? Unquote. And that is what got the ball rolling and what started the persecution and the allegations of blasphemy. I have to say, my hat's off to her. That was a very courageous and charitable thing of her to do. God bless her. And I think that that is the real reason why Francis won't speak out, won't really defend her and only grant it a private audience after years of her family trying to get one. Francis won't stand up for Asia Bibi, in my opinion, because she engaged in real hardcore evangelization of Muslims. She gave testimony to her Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and showed that Muhammad is a false prophet. And in France's religion, that is anathema, because that is proselytism, and he condemns that. Remember what he said on October 13th, 2016, in the Vatican? A, a Lutheran girl from Germany had asked him whether she should be content to have secular friends that she gets along with, or whether she should make an effort to convert them. Here is what Francis said in response, quote, Listen, the last thing you must do is to speak. You have to live as a Christian, like a Christian, convinced, forgiven, and on a path. It is not licit to convince them of your faith. Proselytism is the strongest poison against the ecumenical path. Well, he's got that right. You must give testimony to your Christian life. Testimony will unsettle the hearts of those who see you. And from this unsettling grows one question. But why does this man or this woman live like that? Unquote. See, for Francis, what you're supposed to do is be nice to people, caress the elderly, open a soup kitchen, clean up the environment, and then wait till someone asks, so why are you doing this? And then you can say something like, because I love Jesus Christ. Well, you know, like, like um, people of other religions couldn't also do those things. It's unbelievable. That's not what Christ told us to do. I mean, yes, of course, he, he told us to practice of works of mercy, spiritual and corporal works of mercy. But that's not what Christ said with regard to mission and evangelization. That's not how that works. 
The church's missionaries preached the gospel. They preached the necessity of conversion. Not, not, not forcing anybody to convert, of course, but just preaching that it is necessary for them, for them to convert if they wish to be saved. And there are different ways of doing that, of course. You know, depending on circumstances, one approach is sometimes better than another. But at the end of the day, that's what has to be done. That's what has to be communicated. And you can see that in the New Testament, especially in the Acts of the Apostles beginning in chapter 2. So, in any case, that is what I think is at the root of France's refusal to help Asia Bibi. That, plus the fact that her case uh, makes Islam look bad. And uh, you know how it is for these people. When the facts get in the way of your ideology, well, that's just too bad for the facts. Well, I'd say it's uh, time to take a break now. We'll continue with more Trapcast in just a few moments. Don't go away. Tradcast. We hope you are enjoying the sample of the motet Felix Nanquies from the album Sacred Choral Music by Nicholas Wilton, sung by the acclaimed English choir Magnificat. If you appreciate such sacred choral music, please support the traditional Catholic composer Nicholas Wilton by buying a copy of his CD or purchasing downloads of individual tracks from 4marksmusic.com. That is, F-O-U-R-M-A-R-K-S-M-U-S-I-C.com or his website, catholicmusic.co.uk. There is more information and also a new CD of his piano music available on those websites. for EWTN, this ain't it. Tradcast. Welcome back, back to Trapcast, a traditional Catholic podcast produced by Novos Ordo Watch, where we are not more Catholic than the Pope, as some evil tongues allege, but only more Catholic than the anti-Pope. Now, before we get back into things, I just want to say something real quick. You've probably noticed that the end of the year is approaching, and uh, if you're still looking to get an income tax deduction, you can do that by making a donation to Novos Ordo Watch. We include a donation link in the show notes, or you can simply go directly to novosordowatch.org slash donate. Your contribution supports our work here, not just this podcast, but all of Novos Ordo Watch. And uh, quite simply, the more financial resources we have, the more content we can produce in the long run. And uh, please understand that you always only see the final product. You don't see how much effort is made behind the scenes, how many hours are spent compiling sources, researching claims, looking up Catholic teaching in books and verifying quotes, editing and rewriting text, and so on. And sometimes, you know, things just don't work out. You might spend an hour looking for a particular 
video clip only to find out once you found it that it really doesn't give you what you thought it would and then you can't use it. And uh, then at other times you just you have to do hardware upgrades or just administrative stuff, right? And uh, or correspondence. And uh, I mean, this is a nonprofit organization, and so there is you know a lot of office stuff uh, involved as well. There's bookkeeping to do and reports to file and things like that. So if you're ever tempted uh, to think sometimes that nothing is happening here. Please don't think that, okay? Um, and uh, anyway, I want to thank everyone who's been uh, supporting Novus Auto Watch. We've had a good year, I'd say about as good as last year. And uh, you may have noticed that we only had one single fundraiser this year during Lent, and that's because no other fundraiser was necessary. And um, hey, recently you've been able to uh, contract another researcher and writer, so that's uh, great news. That is one of the fruits of your generosity, so uh, please keep it up. If everyone who benefits from this podcast and this website helps out just a little bit, then this apostolate can really flourish. All right, enough of that. Let's do, let's do something fun now. I think it's time for a new episode in our ongoing series, From the Jorge's Mouth. From the Jorge's mouth. <laughs> yeah, man, if only I got a quarter every time this man's jaw moves, I'd be able to pay off the U.S. national debt in a week. Francis has a Twitter account, and he's not afraid to use it. Well, of course, he doesn't do that himself, actually. He doesn't personally sit there at the computer and send tweets, and certainly not in English. Uh, rather, what happens is that these tweets are sent by someone designated and authorized for that purpose. Um, I guess it's a whole team, since they do that in many different languages, and uh, what they do is they just pick something from what Francis has said recently or even in the more distant past, and uh, then they, they tweet that out, and it shows up as the, the you know, tweet from the Pope. And um, so that's how that works, okay? It's not actually him tweeting, but whatever is tweeted is something that he actually said. Case in point, on November 4th, the Frankster tweeted this, quote, Sunday Mass is at the heart of the church's life. There we encounter the risen Lord. We listen to his word, we are nourished at his table, and thus we become church. Unquote. Yeah, we become church. We sing a new church into being, right? Like that awful Novus Ordo hymn. Wait, where is it? So Francis says that at Sunday Mass, we encounter the risen Lord, we listen to his word, and we are nourished at his table. Now, notice that there's nothing here that a Protestant wouldn't say about his own church service, at least when it includes some kind of communion rite. It's a totally Protestant understanding of what Mass is, which they usually call the Lord's Supper. Notice also that what is totally absent from Francis' tweet is any inkling that the Holy Mass is a sacrifice, and not just a sacrifice of uh, thanksgiving and adoration, but a sacrifice of propitiation that is offered to the Most Holy Trinity. That is completely gone. In fact, everything he says in that tweet has to do with what we receive when the fact of the matter is that above all, the Catholic Mass is about us giving to God. That's why you have to go to Sunday Mass to begin with. That's why it's an obligation. And that's why you have to go to Mass even if you can't or don't want to receive Holy Communion. 
You see, the traditional Catholic catechism teaches that Holy Mass is offered for four principal reasons. Number one, to adore God. Number two, to thank God. Number three, to make reparation for sin to God. And number four, to petition God. Now, all of these things are things that we give to God. We give him our adoration, our thanks, our atonement sacrifice, which is Christ, and we give him our petitions. And yet, in the Novus Ordo sect, almost all that is ever talked about is the Mass as us receiving something from God. Now, of course, we do also receive things from God at Mass, such as graces and blessings, and indeed, if we communicate His very body, blood, soul, and divinity. But that is a consequence of assisting at Mass. It is not the reason for it, at least not the primary reason. Remember what the Council of Trent defined against the Protestants. Quote, if anyone says that in the Mass a true and real sacrifice is not offered to God, or that the act of offering is nothing else than Christ being given to us to eat, let him be anathema. Unquote. And that's Denzinger 948. In the Novus Ordo, the talk is always about Mass as a meal. It's always a meal, a supper, and so forth. Even many of those who still believe in the real presence think the Mass is a meal. It is not. Holy Mass is a sacrifice, not a meal. Holy Communion is a meal, if you will, but the Mass is not. And the only one who is required to receive Holy Communion at Mass is the priest. Distribution of Communion to the people is not really part of the Mass, actually. It is inserted into the Mass and is in itself optional. It does not pertain to um, what is necessary for there to be a Mass. So Francis totally distorts what the Catholic Mass is and why it is offered. But then again, he's speaking, of course, of the Novus Ordo Mass, not the traditional Roman Catholic Mass. So uh, let that be another clue to you, okay? The Novus Ordo worship service, as I like to call it, is essentially different from the Roman Catholic Mass. It is not a sacrifice, but a meal, the Novus Ordo is. It has no offertory, but only a presentation of the gifts. It has no offertory prayer, but only a Jewish table blessing. It has no canon, but only a Eucharistic prayer. It has no consecration, but only an institution narrative. It doesn't even have a priest, but only a presider. Folks, if you're still attending the new Mass, you have got to stop and get the heck out of there. Not only is the new Mass invalid, even if it were valid, you cannot go there. Because it's not the true worship of the Catholic Church. It's a Masonic modernist Protestant service offered by a false church in union with a false pope. So you have no business being there, and God is most certainly not honored by your assistance at it. Quite the contrary. I forgot who it was, but uh, someone once aptly remarked that the Novus Ordo Mass is the New Testament version of the sacrifice of Cain. All right. Uh, what else have we recently heard from the Jorge's mouth? One more, one more from the Frankster here. On September 18th, his wickedness in his daily sermon did it again. He again said, as he had done before years ago, that Christ's authority came from the people, from being close to the people. Here is what Vatican News reported. Quote, What gave Jesus authority, Pope Francis explained, was that he spent most of his time on the road, touching, embracing, listening, and looking at the people in the eye. He was near them, the Pope said. This is what gave him authority, unquote. Now, that is demonic. That is a complete reversal of the truth. That is straight from hell. It's like authority from below. You know, like God's authority is dependent on being recognized by the people. This is modernism on steroids. Obviously, the truth is that Christ's authority came not from below, but from above. 
directly from his heavenly Father, with whom he is one and to whom he is equal. Quote, For he received from God the Father honor and glory, this voice coming down to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Unquote. That's Second uh, Peter 1, 17. Other relevant scripture passages here are John 10.30, where Christ says, I and the Father are one, and John 8.23, where our blessed Lord says, You are from beneath, I am from above. Christ received his authority from the people. Unbelievable. Francis is a demon. But no one cares. No one cares. Not a single voice at his daily Santa Marta sessions stands up and denounces him or at least walks out. Okay? At least not that we've heard about. Not one. And don't wait for any of these Novos Ordo talking heads to be outraged about it. This topic is not intriguing enough, you see? It's not about human sexuality, not about life issues, not about who gets to receive Holy Communion. This is just, you know... Damnable blasphemy. It's just a direct attack on Christ himself. In terms of gravity, blasphemy is even worse than heresy. And Francis has been blaspheming God left and right. And our topical page on Francis, um, which we're going to link in the show notes, has all the information, all the links you need to see how much blasphemy this man has committed. Uh, in the past few years. He's made jokes about the Trinity. Um, he said Christ made himself the devil and uh, and so forth. And and that's why we call him his wickedness instead of his holiness. See, these, these little epithets and monikers we use here, they're all rooted in reality. They're not just simply gratuitous insults, okay? They're all justified. All right, ladies and gentlemen, there is so much more I have here to talk about that There's just no way I could fit it all into one show, and I don't think you'd want a a five-and-a-half-hour show at a time. So um, let's do this. I know it's probably not going to happen, but I will try as hard as I can to put out another full-length Tradcast before the end of the year. Right? How's that? I can't guarantee it because you just never know what happens. For all I know, Francis might decide to set the Vatican on fire tonight, and then we'll be covering that but I'll try, okay? See, whatever time is spent doing one thing is time away from doing something else, and so it's pretty difficult uh, to juggle it all. All right, before we go, I have a book recommendation to make, and I don't want to let you go without it, so here we go. Two Sedevacanist laymen, Mr. Dylan Fellows and Mr. Christopher Conlon, have published a phenomenal little work called Contra Crawford, a defense of baptism of desire and periodic continence. As the title suggests, it's a work defending the traditional Catholic teaching on baptism of desire and baptism of blood, as well as an issue relevant to the married. And it does so in a way that is easy to follow and that makes clear at the outset what is really at the root of uh, the errors that are being refuted here, which is a false view of how the Catholic Church teaches the faithful, specifically through her ordinary magisterium. You see, a lot of people seem to think that the Catholic Church teaches the faithful directly by means of infallible statements and conciliar pronouncements, And then anything less than that is just a bunch of opinions that have value only insofar as they don't contradict the infallible teachings, which they nevertheless totally can. And that's just a completely crazy and absurd view of the church's magisterium. And so the authors tackle that issue right up front. And uh, best of all, the book is enjoyable and easy to read. Okay, it's not dry, it's not boring, it's not tedious to go through. And uh, it's available in electronic format for free, so you can just download it as a PDF file. And uh, it is also available as a paperback and uh, would probably make a pretty nice Christmas gift for some people. You know where to find the link? 
That's right, in the show notes for this episode, Tratcast number 23. Man, so much more to talk about. Like St. Paul VI, for example. Yeah, you heard about that? <laughs> the semi-trats are trying their darndest to get around it, but we won't let them. It'll have to wait till next time, though. Please keep us in your prayers, and God bless you. Thank you.